Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. One of them was Harry Belafonte. And there's a conversation that Harry's talked about in which he quoted your father saying, I fear I'm integrating my people into a burning house. I'd love your perspective on what did your father mean with that quote? What he meant, and when you think about it, he was basically saying that America is going to have to change her ways or she's going to be doomed. It goes back to nonviolence and non-existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may know or may have heard that the uh, April 4th being a Thursday, he would call back home to his secretary every week to give her the title of his sermons. Mm-hmm. And his sermon, had he lived for the Sunday after he died was going to be uh, somewhat something around the title of America may go to hell oh, if wow. it doesn't change its ways. Right. You know, the if part was the not in there. Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all-black everything. Everybody, welcome back to Wild Black. Welcome back, welcome back. You know, some conversations we get a chance to have are just special, right? It's You get a chance to talk to someone whom you've seen, you've heard, and you fully never really expect to be able to sit down and have a conversation. And today is absolutely one of those moments. And in honor of Dr. King Day today, we are blessed to have a conversation with his oldest son. So before I jump in, I want to introduce you to Martin Luther King III. So he's the oldest son of the late Dr. Martin Luther King and Mrs. Coretta Scott King. He gladly serves as an ambassador to his parents' legacy of nonviolent social change and has devoted his life to promoting civil rights, global human rights, and eradicating the triple evils of racism, militarism, and poverty. In living this legacy, King has either led or launched more than a few powerful organizations, including serving as the president of SCLC, serving as the president of the King Center, and the founder of Realizing the Dream Incorporated. So I'm going to hand the mic over to him in a moment. But just before I do, I want you to think about this. How many times have we been watching the news, reading the paper, having a conversation, and you've heard someone say, man, Dr. King would be so disappointed in us. If Dr. King were alive, he'd never touch Twitter, not with a 10-foot pole. He would have never have supported these type of protests. Dr. King knew when to speak and knew when to be quiet. In this situation, he would have said nothing, right? These are real quotes that I pulled off the internet and from articles about people who grab his name and, and speak to his intention and his behavior as if they know him. And I've often wondered, what would he really say? What would he really do? I've often wondered, what was it like to be brought up, inspired, led, raised, created by a man who's seen as such a powerful force in this culture, in our history, in the struggle for civil rights and human rights? And I'm so excited to be able to have that today. So, Martin, welcome to the show, brother. Welcome to Wild Black. 
Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and to your co-host uh, also uh, just having the opportunity to share today. I want to start out briefly just with humor. Uh, we love some mind. humor. Of course. Because of course. I, I think uh, is, the, is the name of the show Wild Black? It is. That is correct? That's it. Yeah, so Black. are you expecting us to change or something? Something going to happen? We going to be... Or does that mean? I, I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering. Just want to get a little context. But I just wanted to know if it, does that mean while we black we gonna be this way and when we, when we turn we'll be something else. I like that. I, I, think, I haven't heard that. That's yet. the first time we've ever heard that question. That is a great question. Well, no, I, sir. I we gonna be black so through and through. Yeah, all right. All right. We, we good there. We good. We black all day all long, day. through and through, every day, even on Sunday. We yes. black. In here, in the past and in the future, we will continue to be black. Yes, I'm gonna change to black wild black. <laughs> Are you ready to warm them up with some wild black shit? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So we kind of gave you a quick little briefing. Um, three questions. Our last question is a signature question. First two questions really just get you warmed up. Music can be highly personal and immediately take you back to a specific memory. Uh, and some of those memories are just good, and some are, are simply bad. What song can you hear today and be immediately taken back to a powerful memory or moment? Wow. Um, I mean, the first thing, I, I'm not sure why I thought about this, but maybe it's because I hope that's my my mantra, and that is if I can help somebody. Um and the words, of course, if I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can share somebody with a word or song, if I can show someone he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. And it goes on and on. So that's the first song. Now, of course, I don't know if you were thinking about pop music or whatever. I guess you, you said Bro, that's you didn't wherever you want to go with yeah. it. This is that's, your song. Your that's, space. that's what that's uh, that's what I thought about this morning. Now, some days I I may be thinking about what's going on, Marvin Gaye. You know, I I, I go in and out of a lot of different iterations and and uh you know i think music certainly sets sets a mode and a tone and defines maybe who we think we are or yeah. who we believe we are and that's mm -hmm. why i said you know i start off with if i can help somebody because every day that's what i think about is there something that i can do to make a difference within our community within our nation within our world um, when I, when I talked about if I can help someone, that was a song that was sung during the movement, during my father's, when I was a young child, I, I would hear it many Sundays, uh, in church. And so that goes back to my, you know, early, I don't even know what age I would have been probably, you know, seven, eight or nine somewhere or, or during those years right. that I would hear one of our, uh, persons in the choir who who sang that song and I I, I immediately uh felt felt uh, something in my in my soul around gotcha. that particular song. Love it, love it, love yeah. it. Cool. That's a good segue too. It is. It works perfectly as we move to this next section. Yes. This next question rather. All right. So now we're gonna play a little game. You get the opportunity to finish the lyrics to these songs. Oh goodness. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and bonus points if you tell us who sang the song. Gold star, bonus points, right. all that. <laughs> all right, first song. I'm, I'm gonna get. It's it's hard. So the, it's so little words I that I'm, I'm gonna try to sing it a little bit. Give it to him. Yeah, a little give bit. It a little him. bit. I, well, singing is probably a strong <laughs> word. It's more gonna be like talking. <laughs> all right, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. James Brown. 
You felt that swag come in? Yeah, I felt that way. That's a profound, <laughs> that's such a profound song in terms of the time that it came out because I happened to be looking at something on television a day or so ago, and it was talking about the, how powerful this song was. And I think about what, how it really empowered our community because for so long, uh, the, the black term has had a negative connotation. Right. I mean, re- really think about it. When you, when you think about the word black, it is always used in a negative sense, even though the primary time that black is positive is when it counts, when it goes to money. If you're in the black in business, you're doing great. Mm-hmm. But everything else, black is negative. I mean, brown cake, a black cake is, a, is the devil food cake. White cake is angel food cake. Right. I mean, when you tell a, a, a black lie, that's supposed to be a little better, a little worse than a white lie. I mean, a lie is a lie is a lie. But this right. is what our system is programmed. When you do something against someone and conspire, it's called blackmail, not white mail. Right. And mm-hmm. all of this, this negativity. So when you think about creating the connotation of something very positive for us to understand and to say it strongly and proudly as James Brown uh, basically was the first to put it out there. I'm black and I'm proud. And I am is something that's critically important because we don't realize that what you say is what you are. So when you Mm. use the I am at the beginning, I am, I am this, I am that. You know, if you say I'm not worth anything, then you won't be worth anything. But when you understand who you are and understand the power of words, there's almost nothing that you cannot achieve. Amen. So that's going to be my song for the day. (laughs) Right there. Playing it everywhere. Yes. (laughs) All right. Uh, Next one. I'm going to make a change. Ooh. I'm going to let you say that one, bro. I'm going to make a change. Um, (laughs) Oh, Lord. Hold on. I know... (laughs) Oh, that's Michael Jackson. There you yeah, go. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah, Michael Jackson, man in the mirror, maybe. For once in my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, next one. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh. That's a song? Uh-huh. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm, I must miss that one. <laughs> now, Mark, we, we, we plan on we, the Atlanta we, backdrop on that right, one. <laughs> right, right. We threw a little one in there on you. <laughs> I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I, I am, am for real. real. That's outcast. That's outcast. <laughs> oh, that's why. At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting Black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.
Yeah, I, I, I love certain songs of Outkast, <laughs> but I'm not. A, I, unfortunately, I'm not a connoisseur of Outkast. It's all good. But I, there's one or two songs that I really like. Yes, got it. <laughs> I, should know, I should know that, be, being that they're here in Atlanta. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed that I don't know. But there's no, probably a lot of Atlanta artists that I really don't know. A you lot, know Atlanta produces about. so many amazing yep. artists. How can yeah. you keep up with all of them? That's, yeah. that's, that's and, and you can say we put you on to Outkast, Miss Jackson. Yep. Absolutely. On Wild Black. <laughs> All right. We fall down, but... Uh, that's uh, Donnie... Not Donnie... Uh, hmm. It's Donnie McClurkin. That's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. We must get back up. That's it. That's it. Yes. All right. Um, Last one. You give him that one, bro. Blood on the Leaves and... Um, not sure. This is a good one. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Strange fruit. Strange fruit. Oh, That's yes. What that oh, is. absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's been so long. Yeah. The way I mean, it's structured is, is hard right. to get that right. When, yeah. you, when right. you get these lyrics with, without the, the framework that delivered it, right. it is difficult. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right, hit, hit him with the signature question, brother. All right. Now, th- now this is, <laughs> this goes to your question earlier, too. Uh, what do you love most about life? Wow, black. What I love most about life while black. <laughs> Let me tell you, well, first of all, I love everything <laughs> since I don't intend to change. <laughs> so, this is my life. I love it. Yes. Uh, but if I was to have to, you know, talk about specifics, you know, I would have to say, you know, I love black women. And, you know, I have, I mean, any of us who are married, maybe Amen. You totally appreciate this. Yep. Um, when you are blessed to find a woman who not just supports your every move or everything that you do, but lifts you up. And, it, you know, oftentimes one does not find the right woman. But right. my God, when you do, uh, it is paradise every day. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean you don't have ups and downs. That, that's not what that means. Right. But you have to figure out how you navigate through your challenges. Right. And I'm just so thankful to God that I found the right wife. Amen. And mother of uh, our child. Amen. Um, that, you know, I, there's nothing more that I love than, than family. Yeah. And, um, um, I, certainly, I love my people. I love my community. That's why every day I wake up wondering what can I do to make a difference in our community. Yeah. Um, my father and mother taught me to love myself, to love our family, to love our community, and to love God. Mm. So love of self love of family, love of community, and love of God. When you love your community, there are things in the community that you shouldn't accept and mm. that you must work every day to do something to make a difference. And what I, what I mean by that is, you know, we live in Atlanta, and this is a multi, um, a city with multi-talented, uh, multi, we multi-ethnic, we are multi, we have all kind of creativity. Mm-hmm. We have 
billions and billions of dollars worth of revenue. And yet we have the audacity to have, you know, probably 100,000 people who are living not below the poverty level, but are living on the streets. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's perplexing to me because if we were in a third world sub-Saharan African country or South American country or Eastern Europe, somewhere where the dire poverty was based on the fact that you're third world. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you could understand it, but I, I, I don't understand uh, the blessings that we have in this city of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But not there. There's, there's another 50 of them, not just it's our city. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which goes to the point that I'm not suggesting we just give people things. There are some that we will have to always take care of. But what I am saying is in a city where we have, you know, 15 uh, Fortune 500 corporations, um, we have, we, we should have the best education on the planet, not just in Atlanta, but another 50 yeah. cities, but certainly Atlanta. Um, yeah. We should have housing for everyone. It doesn't, you don't have to have, I mean, you could have a house, the equivalent of a small tent. Right. But it should be a stand or a little bit larger, maybe <laughs> 300 square feet or 200 yeah. square feet. I mean, it doesn't have to be a 10,000 or 50,000 square foot home. Right. Everybody's not going to have that. But everybody in the United States of America ought to be able to have a decent home. Something that's uh, there. The Something best that's education. I completely the, agree. The, uh, a decent job. Uh, Health care. And justice. Not some people, but everyone. And so it, it bothers me that we in Atlanta specifically, let's just talk about Atlanta, with these 14, 15, maybe 17 uh, Fortune 500 corporations have an abysmal system of education. We have uh, tremendous poverty. Yeah, we got wealth too. A lot of, a lot of brothers and sisters doing well. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but what about the brothers and sisters that are suffering, which are the masses of our right. people? Right. And that's what we're not dealing with yep. as a community. That's what we're not dealing with as a nation. And ultimately, if we don't address it in the United States, then we cannot address it in the world because people look to the United States, at least they did, you know, at least <laughs> four years ago. They used to look at us. Uh, now I'm not sure what they're looking. They're looking at, well, they, today they're looking toward us again. I'll yeah. say that much. At least they're looking toward us because we had one, one period of time for four years, mm-hmm. just about four years now, where we've had a, a destructive, disruptive force uh, that has wreaked havoc on our nation and the world. Right. And yet 73 million people supported this. Yeah, yeah. And that needs to, that we got to do some serious examination. And then in our own community, yeah. we had our own people yeah. supporting that, which is very difficult to understand. It so is. My, my highest point is this. I always say we can, we must, and we will do better. Right. But it takes a few good women and men to bring about change. Amen. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, there always, always times in history. There's never a time in history when we haven't had an opportunity to create change. And so we have to keep working. We got a, a lot more work to do. Some would say we should be further along. I agree with that. But part of that, 
Well, I'll go into that in another question. I'll, I'll just stop <laughs> for now. It's all good. And honestly, that creates the, the perfect segue into our dope quote because I think, I think honestly yeah. that this is at the essence of what you're saying. Um, so I'll read our dope quote. And for our, our listening audience, they know our dope quote is something from the mouth of a black man or a black woman. It's from uh, philosophy, religion, history, music, entertainment, just some place where we have had the power and opportunity to inject our words. And so I'll read today's and then we'll have a very quick conversation about it. We have before us the glorious opportunity to inject a new dimension of love into the veins of our civilization. You know, it, it, from a contextual standpoint, um, I think dad felt that if you always emanated from a place of love, that you had, would have nothing but success. And even, you know, uh, even those who, who are adversaries or those who purport to hate you, uh, you, you have to, and it's, it sounds going to be sound strange. This is going to sound strange. How do you love the hell out of somebody that hates you? And that's a, a strange thing. But certainly we saw that in his life, he, he demonstrated, you know, that, that that could actually be the case, that, you know, love, love will change ev everything, ultimately. Right. And I, I'll go so far as to say, you know, there, some would say that there's always a place for hostility and violence. And maybe violence, some would say, has its place. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you logically look at, in the old biblical days, there was a philosophy of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And if we embrace that philosophy, most of us would be without eyes and teeth. Right. So clearly <laughs> there has to be something higher that humankind has to aspire to. Um, and that's what nonviolence teaches us with dignity and respect. Um, it teaches us, you know, how to, how to interact with one another. Because if you treat a person with dignity, you almost have to demand dignity and respect, uh, maybe sometimes to get dignity and respect, right. because people don't automatically sometimes do that. Certainly, we realize that when it comes to racism, uh, whether it's in policing, whether it's in, in anything, but, you know, we have, to, we have to demand that. But humankind has a capacity to operate at a level that we, we oftentimes do not achieve. And what I mean by that is we, we're operating at the lowest levels at, at this point. Mm -hmm. And part of it is promoted and, and regurgitated to us in a way that causes us to, to act at lower levels. I mean, and, and the only, <laughs> I, you know, I hate to keep, I don't know if hate it is the right word, but I, I, I don't necessarily like to keep coming back to this point. But it shows that when you can elect someone like a Donald Trump as your head of state, right. that there's something in that kind of behavior, if you embrace that, and after four years, you've seen this bombastic, over and over, disruption. You've seen someone take children, put them in cages, mm -hmm. and, 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 and separate them from their parents, and you still support that force. Right. I don't, right. It, it, that, that alone, he talked about gas and just, we just gas the children, just kill them. And because they are a different color, but they're still God's children. They're still human beings. And yet, you, you know, this is, that's, that's one of a hundred things that have been done, or maybe even hundreds that, 
make me wonder what is going on in the in the human psychic yeah. uh, right now that 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 so many of us would be so we we're so divided as a nation and if we're not able to overcome these divisions you know then we could go in a direction that we may not ever rebound from. And what I, what I mean by that, my dad said we must learn nonviolence or we may face non-existence. Mm. We are at a point in our lives, in our nation's history, where we could almost drift into that if we don't get these things under control and begin to change the thoughts of those who want to destroy, you know, destroy us, destroy you know, of, of a human being. I mean, you know, we, we, we got more guns in our society than you can shake a stick. I mean, there's more guns than people. Mm -hmm, Everybody's gunned up and I'm not criticizing anybody who wants to have a gun. That's one's prerogative. That's everyone's prerogative. But at the end of the day, we're going to come out in the street and have a shootout. And that's, that's how we're going to resolve our conflicts. As opposed to, you know, when you think about, we are supposed to be God's highest creation. That's humankind. Right, and yet you've never seen a group of dogs talking about, you know, um, Socrates, or Plato, or Euripides, <laughs> or, or 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 you know, W. E. B. Du Bois, right. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, or, or because they don't have that capacity. You you've never seen a, a, a group of tigers, you know, talking about I'm Democrat, I'm Republican, I'm Independent. They don't have that capacity. You've never seen a a, a, a group of of snakes <laughs> or any animal, I, you know, I, I saying snakes, that I'm though. Christian, I'm Muslim, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Hindu, I'm Buddhist, I'm, I'm atheist, I'm agnostic. They don't have that ability. Humankind right. has the capacity to think and reason. And yet when we get ready to resolve conflict, we resort to lower animal means, survival, mm. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. Well, yep. is that really the best way to achieve the goal? Is that something that's sustainable? Right. Yes, you can rule someone with power for a long time, but that is not going to be sustainable. You're going to always have to have people protecting you, looking over your shoulder, hoping that somebody doesn't take you out. But if you do it in the right way, which is dignity, respect, um, and appreciation for one another, then that may be a sustainable model for a long, long time. Right, right. Completely agree. Yeah, completely agree with that. So what I want to mm-hmm. do now is we want to move into the core portion of the interview. And, and listeners, just so you understand what's coming up next, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about Martin's childhood, living with the Dr. Martin Luther King that we all know, love, and respect. We also want to talk a bit about what he's doing and how he's carrying that legacy forward and the things that he is putting into place as we move through time, as we continue to fight social justice. So let's jump into that, right? Um, the first question I have for you is, your father, in many regards, is seen as the preeminent leader of the American civil rights fight. What was childhood and, and even adulthood like being the offspring of Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott? What was that like? You know, I would have to far, first start off with um, just an amazing, remarkable experiences. I'm, I certainly didn't necessarily, as a child, uh, know. Uh, or understand what dad was doing. In fact, when I was probably four or five years old, because he had he and his colleagues, from Dr. Abernathy to um, Hosea Williams, he's a right. uh, you know local 
legendary uh, figures who were larger than life. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. C.T. Vivian, who just passed yep. this year on the same day that John Lewis yep. passed. Uh, all these guys, when something was wrong, they go to jail. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. And so I, I didn't understand that jail was for when you do something wrong <laughs> until a, a much later age. I really, well, when something was wrong, my daddy, they, they going to jail. They're going to make it right. Because that's what happened. I you know, get that. Now, they, were, they were going to jail for immoral laws, laws right. that were wrong, that mistreated people. Mm -hmm. And so as a kid, I think mom and dad tried to shelter us from as much as possible. And, but I, I didn't learn probably until after it didn't totally dawn on me until maybe I was 10 years old that dad was an unusual, remarkable, uh, and kind of a different individual than the average individual, not meaning that he did, he thought he was better than anybody that, that had nothing to do with it, right. but his mission, his life's work, uh, you know, we, uh, we spent sometimes with him. In fact, I traveled with him, my brother and I, seven or eight times over, over the years to see him in the context of the work that he did. Right. Um, in our home as a child, I used to love uh, the Sunday mornings because those were the few days that he actually was in town. He would be in town. It seemed like he would leave early the morning as we were on our way to school or before we went to school early. And he may get back you know, late in the evening, uh, most, most days, sometimes he was gone two or three days at a time, but generally he would try to leave early, be gone for the day and then come back home. And we might see him early the next morning, but he was gone again. So Sunday morning was a very important time because oftentimes he was preaching at Ebenezer church. He was the co-pastor. His father was the pastor and he was the co-pastor, uh, he would he would characterize it this way. He was the uh, he was his his dad was the senior pastor, right? Which meant he was in charge, and he was <laughs> he was he just worked with his dad. But um, on those Sundays, every Sunday morning, uh, when we got up, we had breakfast. We would sit at the table, and Dad would lead us in prayer, and then we would recite our Bible verses, and then we would talk about. Uh, the issues that he was involved in in working to resolve in our nation. And that's kind of how we learned about the work that he was involved in. Um, and then there were times when my mother would also travel uh, to raise money for the, the organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that he co-founded with about 60, uh, seven, actually about 70 other ministers. Wow. And SCLC was the vehicle that he used to do the work that he did um, from 1957 up to, to his death in 1968, um, which later on, I was blessed to be chosen the fourth president. Uh, Dr. Abernathy, dad's uh, partner and, and, and dear friend, was the second president. Dr. Joseph Lowry was the third, and I was the fourth president of SCLC. But um, in our home, um, after those, those experiences with, with, with dad and 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 later on with mom, because, you know, mom was always involved. She was not just um, his wife, but right. she was his true partner 
And oftentimes, in fact, truth be told, dad, when they met at graduate school, mother was at the Boston Conservatory of Music in Boston, and dad was at BU working on his PhD. Right. And when they met, mother had already been involved in peace demonstrations in places around the country. Oh. And they read a lot of the, the same books. So in a sense, you know, he would say, dad even said in interviews that, you know, that mother brought him along. She was oh. a little ahead of him. So it wasn't like they, you know, okay, she met him and then she became engaged. She was already engaged. And that's what he appreciated about her. And then, you know, I remember she, she used to tell the story that when she first met him, dad was not very tall. He was probably five, six, five, seven. Right. And mom was like, you know, five, 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 four. And so, uh, you know, and, and interestingly enough, both uh, my brother and I, my brother's probably 6'2", and I'm almost six feet. I'm about 5'11". Right. So uh, both of us were taller than dad. But <laughs> the, the thing my mother used to say was, when I first met him, he, he was, first thing she saw was, he's such a little man. <laughs> but, but she said, the longer she talked to him, the taller he grew in uh, terms of depth. Because he was, you know, he had a, an amazing uh, amount of depthfulness right. that she learned to, to, to love and appreciate, and they had so much in common. So I, I'm saying that to say that it was not just my father. It was right. my mother who understood the philosophy of nonviolence. You know, dad, you know, studied Gandhi, studied about the robe. First and foremost, he was a Christian minister. So Christ uh, was, was, was often where he went to, to get refuge and all. But yet uh, he studied all these different philosophers and, 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 and mastered understanding. And also, he was a different kind of Christian minister. He did not just believe that the only way you're going to get into the kingdom is that you have to be this kind of specific Christian. Because he understood that there were some people who were Muslim. There were some people who were Jewish. Right. There were some people who were agnostic and atheist. Right. And, and yet there also was a place for them. And we have to coexist in our world. Right. We can't just be, it can't just be about you know, sometimes religion religion has a tendency to divide us. In fact, that's part of its design and intent to create division among you know among people because right. that's how you control people. And that's not what his objective was. His objective was to do justly, to do righteousness, to do uh, to teach truth. Right. And um, I think I got off the question a little bit, but it's I'll all come good. It's great. No, it's great. It's great. <laughs> yeah. it, honestly, some of the things that you that you said brought up. A secondary question. One, I want to make a comment that the role that your mother played in who your father became ties right back to the point you made in our opening about finding a powerful black woman to partner with, right? Mm -hmm. It sounds like he may not have become who he was without her plugging in, right? They made each other better. They helped each other to reach whatever legacy they were supposed to create. So, one question I really have, I actually have two. One's kind of silly, but one's, one's very serious. Knowing your father and knowing your mother, was there intention behind him becoming who we celebrate today? Like at an, at an earlier age, did he decide, I want to be the man who was credited with truly driving the civil rights struggle in this country? Or did he kind of just find himself doing the work? I don't think 
by any uh, stretch of the imagination that he had thought about that the objective is for me to be become who I am. Right. The objective is to get the work done. Right. You know, in fact, my mom raised me that way to just go out and do the work. And, you know, credit is not something we're looking for. Dad right. never was really looking, never, I mean, not really. He never was looking for credit. Right. It was all about the work and the mission and the work. And, and I think it was more a spiritual. It was what he felt God wanted him to do. Mm. Mm. He was obedient to what he felt God wanted him to do. Right. And as a result, that's why it yielded what it is. I mean, I used to hear, and I, you know, because I'm so close to the situation, I still may not understand this. One of my dear friends was Dick Gregory. And Dick yeah. Gregory used to say, you know, number one, he he and, and, and was close to dad and a, a number of folks in the movement. And I don't think Dick has ever gotten his just due in my judgment um, oh, in terms powerful. of the kind of commitment that he had, the kind of information he disseminated. You can go and listen to it today. And even mm -hmm. though he's, he's only been gone for three or four years, it sounds like something that happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. I mean, Highly Dick relevant. was prophetic and profound. Yep. And so, but Dick used to say, look, he said, look, 500, a thousand years from now, they're going to still be talking about Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, why, why do you say that, Greg? I, you know, I would, and because, again, I'm so close to the situation that maybe I wasn't even as a youngster able to see it. I was probably in my 20s or, or at that, that time when, when, you know, my, my mom used to say from time to time that, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s only come so often. Right. And that didn't mean that he was, um, totally so different from others. It's just that, again, it's the anointing. It's, yeah. it's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the prophecy. As I said, you go and listen to his speeches now, 50, 50, 53 years ago. Um, and if you listen to them, it sounds like something that happened just yesterday. Yeah. Because that's what, you know, when you have a prophetic message, it, it's timeless. And yeah. certainly I have a dream. You, you don't know when that really was delivered. There were speeches where he used Negro. And when he started using black, then you, that's, that's timeless. Right. You know, it just, it goes, and, and again, that, that goes to, uh, again, this is, this man, um, I believe was, was maybe sent here to do yeah. a, a mission that God wanted him to do. And so it wasn't about, it wasn't about getting a holiday. It wasn't about, uh, making sure that my, um, my legacy is intact. Because he, he really didn't finish his work, right. if you think about it. He right. took us to a level, yeah. and we're still working to get to the next levels. Right. Had he lived, I think our nation and world would be totally different yeah. uh, in, a, in a dramatically different way. And maybe we would have addressed poverty or right. at least minimized it. Yeah. We would have addressed racism or at least minimized it. We would have addressed militarism and violence. Right, right, um, right. And yet, uh, those things are, are are busting at the seams in a in a real sense, and right. we don't even talk about this. But we have over a hundred million people in this nation that are either in poverty or at a poverty level yeah. in the United States of America, and yet we are able to see all of these individuals who are doing well, and thank God for that. But what about the masses? Absolutely, because in, in the United States, in my judgment, we should have a different level 
of, I mean, poverty maybe in a small way should exist or could exist. I don't want to say should because I don't believe anything should, but certainly could exist. But the fact of the matter is it's beyond anywhere where it should be. I mean, it's too, too, too prevalent in our society and that, that should be unacceptable. And that is a mission that we've got to continue to work on so that we can eradicate and in, 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 in if we can't do it here, then I don't know if it can be done anywhere in the world. Absolutely That's right. why I'm convinced that we can do it. It, yeah. it takes a strategic plan. But um, finally, um, you know, dad was called to a mission right. and he was obedient in my judgment for I'm, that mission. I'm glad for his calling. Listen, one of the things that you brought up was his assassination. And I want to talk about that for a quick moment. So... The day, the day your father was assassinated, I've seen depicted on TV many times over, right? You see black folks in the street hurt. You see men, women, and children crying. And, and that was because of what they felt from him. That was because of the impact that he had on him. But that was your dad. That was, that was your father. What, what were those moments and that day like in your household when, when you found out that news? Well, let, let me give you some context. Um... Because the four of us, uh, my sister Yolanda, the oldest, who's uh, mm-hmm. deceased now, and myself, uh, my brother Dexter, and my younger sister Bernice, were in our front uh, sort of uh, um, den area, which there was a television on. Right. And roughly at 7 p.m. Um, on the news, maybe 7.05. Right. Uh, one of the cat newscasters of the day, and back then we didn't have but the three channels, <laughs> maybe four. There may have been an educational channel. There's channel two, channel five, and 11 <laughs> here in Atlanta. And um, it came across the national news, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had just been shot. And so naturally, um, I think subconsciously we were not surprised. Consciously, yeah. you obviously are like, oh, my God. Right. And I'm saying subconsciously now, just looking back. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so immediately we ran back to mom and dad's room, all of us, to try to get some explanation as to whether or not she knew what had happened. And she was preparing to go to the airport uh, because she had received a call from Ambassador Young. And he basically said, you know, it's it's pretty bad. You may want to come this mm. way to, to be by his side. And, and Jesse Jackson called and, and uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, something like, uh, Doc's been shot, you need to catch the first thing smoking, something like that. And, right. You know, in the Jesse-ish style. <laughs> and um, so she didn't have an explanation for us at that time, but I remember it seemed like people just arriving from, I don't know, all over, and I don't remember who specifically, but our home was was full, and mom went to the airport, and when she got to the airport, she stopped to go to the restroom before she was get ready to board her flight, and then she saw a man walking toward her, and he was walking pretty fast, and it was the mayor of Atlanta, Ivan Allen, mm-hmm. and she could tell that he had something to say that probably was not going to be what she wanted to hear uh, by the way he was walking to her. And, and he said, of course, you know, Mrs. King, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, Dr. Dr. King didn't make it. 
Mm. And uh, so she said, instead of going to Memphis, I think I better go home, back home, and and, uh, tell uh, my children, prepare them. And so uh, Bernice was in the bed by the time she got back. And I don't know what time this was. It may have been 9 o'clock or 8.30. But she said to us, she said uh, to the three older ones of us, your daddy is gone home to live with God. Mm. And when you see him, he will not be able to hug and and kiss you uh, as he once did. But we will see him again someday. That was the essence. It was probably far more profound than that, but that was the essence. Um, My siblings had a lot of questions. I don't remember my raising any questions much. And except for, well, what, what are we going to do about going? I, somebody said I said something about going to school because I was concerned about missing school, even though I just lost my father, because that's how I was programmed in that particular in that particular day. But I was I was sort of in a daze for a number of a, like a dream. I mean, it was, in a, it was like, is this really real? And um, that was April 4th. That was a Thursday. So on April 8th, which was a Monday, we, we actually did the homegoing service and buried dad on, well, actually we entombed him because he actually was put in a, in a, uh, a temporary crypt right. at a cemetery in Atlanta called uh, um, Southview. And he was there for just um, a few months. And then eventually his remains were moved and entombed and enshrined at the King Center. But, um, um, the the center actually was not built. I'm just to, to give context. It was right. a, a temporary place where he his remains were for a number of years, and then the center was finally built, and then he was uh, placed where his crypt is today, along with mothers that is there today as well. That was not obviously at the time, but um, over that period of time, very interesting things happened. Um, on April eighth, my mother. Dad was to have led a march in Memphis, and Harry Belafonte came to Atlanta, uh, maybe a little, uh, probably even before we went, my mom went to Memphis to bring Dad's remains back to Atlanta, which was the day or so, I think the next day, April 5th, uh, I believe, or she brought Dad's remains back to Atlanta. But Harry Belafonte was here the whole time, and he encouraged Mother to go to Memphis, and she went to Memphis and led that march. Wow. Now, think about this. You know, no one had been captured for his murder. Later on, we found out people still think James O'Ray, but James O'Ray had nothing to do with it. He was a patsy. I mean, he was just right. sent different places. But the fact of the matter is no one had been captured. And yet, you know, Dad had just been killed, and she continued in that tradition. She took the three older ones of us. so. Uh, Dexter, Yolanda, and I went with her, accompanied her. And, of course, we came back. We went up on the morning of the 8th and flew back on the evening of the 8th. And then on the 9th, of course, the home-going services took place, one at at Ebenezer and the other at Morehouse College. And then, as I said, he was uh, taken to uh, Southview Cemetery. But during that period of time, you had a host of people who came to visit and pay their respects to uh, every one of, or many of the presidential candidates. Certainly I remember uh, Robert Kennedy as running for president and his wife, Ethel, 
Jackie Onassis, of course, and uh, Ted Kennedy uh, and his wife at the time. All of them came to her home, along with Richard Nixon, who was running for president. And just for context, people wouldn't know this, but Dad and Richard Nixon had a relationship. So when he came to the funeral, it wasn't just as, mm. um, you know, a guy who was being, ex, uh, you know, who was being uh, expeditious because he was running for president. They actually, when when Eisenhower was president between '55 and and 1960, um, somewhere between those years, I think there was a delegation uh, in Ghana or Ghanaian independence. And Mm. Nkrumah invited dad and mom over. And Richard Nixon was leading the U.S. delegation that went over as vice president. And so dad and he conferred on a number of issues uh, in letters. They are written letters where they were conferring about, you know, integration. And and it, 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 it was an interesting dialogue. But certainly in 1960, when he ran against Kennedy, um, and Kennedy, the Kennedy family was helpful, and Dad, Dad's father, I don't know the Dad publicly, I can't remember what he said, but Granddaddy was very supportive of, of Kennedy and helped him to become president by what he said about uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, so I'm, I'm giving context just because Nixon, as I said, was there. But you also had, you know, Sidney Poitier and and uh, Sammy Davis mm-hmm. and um, Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin was very close to uh, to Dad. Uh, her father, Reverend C. L. Franklin, and Dad were very close. As, as well, actually, Doctor C. L. Franklin was close to my granddaddy, but he also was close to Dad in 1963. Uh, before the march in Washington, there was a march. Uh, in Detroit, about two months before the march, it might have been June of 63, there was a a march, 100,000 people marched down Woodward Avenue in Detroit. Mm. And Reverend C.L. Franklin, dad, and Walter Ruther from the um, uh, labor, uh, from um, the the, the labor movement, they led that that march along with 100,000 people. Uh, So it was a preamble to the march on Washington. Mm. But again, you know, Wilp Chamberlain was was in, here in in Atlanta, um, and the list goes on and on. And then there were countless numbers of persons whose faces and names we may not know. It was the most people I had ever seen, wow. and so maybe that's when I began to realize, wow, just how significant Dad was. So you you mentioned first off, I I got so many questions. I do too, <laughs> bubbling through my mind. It's, it's amazing. How often do you get a chance to to have this type of conversation? But you mentioned several famous people. Um, one of them was Harry Belafonte. And there's a conversation that Harry's talked about in which he quoted your father saying, I fear I'm integrating my people into a burning house. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mm-hmm. And, and, and much like the quote we talked about earlier, I know what I think that means, right? But I'd love your perspective on what did your father mean with that quote? So what, what he meant, and when you think about it, um, he was basically saying that America is going to have to change her ways or she's going to be doomed. It goes back to nonviolence and non-existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may know or may have heard that um, the 
April 4th being a Thursday, he would call back home to his secretary every week to give her the title of his sermons. And his sermon, had he lived for the Sunday after he died, was going to be uh, somewhat something around the title of America may go to hell. Oh, if wow. it doesn't change its ways. Right. And, you know, the if part was not in there. It, it was, and of course, <laughs> obviously he didn't live to, to see a sermon. So, right. uh, to, to, but some of those things, you know, some would say came to bear. So when you talk about a burning house, when you look at the poverty rate um, that exists today, average uh, wealth of white families, $175,000, mm. wealth of blacks, maybe 15000 uh, where you, you have to ask the question, where have we made progress? That's just one, one metric. There are hundreds, whether it comes to health care, whether it comes to education, uh, whether, I mean, all these dynamics. And so when you think about the, the many obstacles that exist, it really is like a burning house. It, it's mm -hmm. not like, okay, this is, and, and that doesn't mean that America can't become a, a nation that it ought to be. I'm going to use that because I don't, you know, I don't, there's a, a saying now that, that folks have been using about great again. And I'm like, well, when was that? What <laughs> right. does great again mean? Who, who, How do you have who, an again who, if who you weren't you there about? in the first place? What, what are you talking about? What point, what's your reference yes, point? What, yeah, what is it? Where, and, and nobody can ever tell you that. When was it great? It certainly hadn't been great for my people. Right. You know, I mean, right. there have been good moments. There have been, you know, I mean, there was, in fact, in over the I, every time we get to the King holiday, I, I talk about um, that we are uh, you know, the holiday is something to celebrate and observe. But I say observe as opposed to celebrate, and I, I'm going to tell you why. Because you know we celebrated certainly when Ronald Reagan signed the holiday bill in '83. We celebrated when we first observed it in 86. We celebrated when Barack Obama was, you know, elected in 2008 and, and sworn in in 2009. But, you know, celebration as it relates to dad's dream is not in order. It's not even near the vicinity yet. Mm -hmm. We celebrate milestones, but we can't have true celebration. We have to observe, you know, and, and, and until we achieve uh, these these objectives, mm. and I, I'm saying that because you know we are we, we are seeing the remnants of of a burning house. Fifty two years later, fifty you know the last four years, you know it's it, it's been fire, yeah, uh, yeah. and not just four years, even even during the Obama years, yeah. there was fire. There were fires in our community burning, burning and bright we go, and we hard. go back. Every, every, and it doesn't mean we haven't made some incremental progress, right. but it does mean that the masses of people have made almost no progress. Right. And that's not, um, that's not something that we should to be, celebrate. uh, pleased about. We should right. be, we should be beyond displeased. Now, when we work together as a community, you know, we can change this trajectory and think about this last year, black people, and here's the op operative word, spent over a trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. Over a trillion dollars we spent. Yeah. But yet, we don't have one black bank that has a billion dollars in it. Yeah. If, he had, if we had 10 black 
but black banks out of, I don't know how many there are now. There may be less than 30, right. probably less than 20. But if we had, uh, you know, 10 banks that had a hundred billion in them, then we could, uh, rebuild our communities. We could mm-hmm. rebuild our schools. We could do all kinds of things yeah. if we controlled our destiny. The problem yeah. is we don't understand how to control our destiny. And so far, there has not been a strategic plan that's been created that would give us uh, the mechanism to do that. And the fact of the matter is we are still, even in our own community, we are far too divided. Right. And so uh, we've got to, take an assessment. We need a, one of the things we need is an African-American um, strategic uh, think tank. Right. Uh, like the Brookings Institute or the Hoover Institute. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, there are, you know, at least eight or 10 billionaires that we know of. Black right. In this, yep, right. I'm saying now we know of, because there's some people under, under the radar that That's you right. don't know about, mm-hmm. but they got some money too. Right. <laughs> so why can't we raise a billion dollars right. to create a think tank that's focused on addressing issues of our community where we pay people half a million dollars. They don't have to do anything but think the best and the brightest ideas that can be and how you implement them. That's part of what we need to have in my judgment because we don't have that anymore. And most of the political movements, you know, whether it was Reagan, Reagan was planned in the 60s with a think tank. You know, all the stuff that Reagan did, that's how he was able to win. Now, I don't know about this Trump stuff. I won't say that was about that. I think that was an anomaly. But I will say that many things happen through think tanks and the African-American community. We need to figure out how do we control our dollars? How do we keep them in our community? Yeah, yeah. Because we know that money circulates from a low of two times to a high of, you know, maybe 20 times. Some yep. communities, the money never comes out of. Right. Our community, when it comes in, in two hours, it's out. Gone. We got to change that. And yeah, that's yeah. a big, big job. I think it's it's interesting. Like, I love the idea of the, the powerful think tank that can help holistic Black America move forward. But something else that I say, um, I'm lucky to have the relationship that I do with Mike Ross. Because while holistically, I think we do need that think tank, individually, I... I tell Mike this all the time, and he probably thinks I'm halfway joking, but I'm serious as a heart attack. I think every black person walking needs their own Mike Ross, right? Because I know no question. He, he, he provides mentorship to me and to so many other people on an individual basis that allows you to not only find success, but to look at the world differently, right? To be able to consume the things around you in a manner that you may not have been able to do before. And the combination of that type of individual leadership and mentorship, along with that think-take attitude that can help to lift us up holistically, positions us extremely well. I mean, just, just the fact that he's the reason I'm talking to you today. So he's done so much in, in that, right? I, I want everyone to have a powerful individual mentor to support the, the smaller conversations that the think-take won't be able to address. I love that idea. One thing I want to I want to jump into a little bit is Malcolm X, right? There are there's mm-hmm. so many things that we hear about the relationship between your father and Malcolm X. But I want to understand the real behind it because in in my mind when when two people are fighting for something that is so similar in the goal, even when the tactics and the strategies are different, I I wonder how you can be at odds. So being that's the story that's been painted. I wanted to ask you from, from being in the household and from being, of course, your, your father's son and, and being there with your mother through all this. 
What was that relationship truly like? So, first of all, there was mutual respect, right. uh, at least ultimately. I don't know initially. I can't speak to what, what happened initially, but I know that, you know, Malcolm X constantly was growing in terms of, you know, his vision, his everything in terms of when he saw, when he went, after he went to Mecca and saw that there were Muslims of every ethnic persuasion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he took a different, a different, I think he had a different bent. Didn't mean strategically or his strategies were different. He still may have embraced some of the same strategies, but had he lived, I think he would have grown into such a, uh, a different and, and such a, I mean, he was such a powerful leader anyway. But again, that, there was mutual respect. Uh, I don't think they had, I think they had a couple of meetings, brief meetings, right. but they really didn't have a long, uh, a, a long-term uh, level of communication. They would have had he lived. I'm sure right. of that. There's right. no question about it. And I, they would have probably joined uh, together in, in, in a, a number of capacities. Um, one of the reasons I say that is because Dr. Betty Shabazz and Marilee Evers, mm-hmm. Medgar Evers' wife yep. and mom, became very close. And, you know, they all suffered something in common yes, because... Uh, they all lost their husbands. Theirs was more graphic and different than mothers. Right. We saw dad killed. We saw him laying down in blood on television. Betty Shabazz was literally with her husband in front mm-hmm. of her eyes, and her children were there. So they all suffered in a different way. Yeah. Uh, Met Merle Evers and her two children were in their home, and they the came right outside and saw their father and husband, her husband uh, lying in the blood. I mean, it... I just can't imagine. Um, yeah. I thank God I was spared from having to see Dad in that way. I saw him on television, right. but not up close. So, right. uh, but the point is, they became very close. They, 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 they uh, over over the years, and and so I'm sure that you know Malcolm X and Dad would have been very, very close because they they had a heart for the community, the people. You know, Dad. Uh, really his last campaign. And, and a lot of people don't necessarily embrace and understand the revolutionary part of Martin Luther King Jr. Right. I heard Chris Rock say something the other day about in the 60s, you know, when, when Dr. King was leading, they didn't ask for anything. And today we need to ask for some. We need to demand something more. And, you know, I was thinking, well, you, you don't understand Dr. King. Because he wasn't killed because he was talking about sitting in the front of a bus. He was killed because he was talking about a radical redistribution of wealth. Absolutely. In the United and he was killed because he talked about the Vietnam War and the injustices of the war and how, you know, several entities came angry with him from the government to the mob. The mob was mad because they were transporting poppy seeds in the bodies of American soldiers. They would cut them open and the poppy seeds are used to manufacture heroin. So all of the drug trade was predicated on him criticizing this war and even that dynamic he talked about. One year to the day of his death, April 4th of 1967, he did a speech at the Riverside Church in New York city called Beyond Vietnam. And that's when he talked about the immorality of this war. And Lyndon Johnson took it personally because he had been, you know, as friendly as a racist can be. 
you know, to, 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 to there. I'm saying that because I don't mean that. I mean, he did more for civil rights than any president. So you can't take that away from him. But, you know, he it, it, he would say, a, he'd say nigga in a minute. He called black men nigga in a minute. <laughs> yeah. He never directly said that to dad. He you Under his breath, he may have said that. Right. So I'm just saying he was raised in a racist world. And so I, I get that. But he certainly did the right thing uh, when it came to, signing the Civil Rights Act and signing the Voting Rights Act. He's the one who got those pieces of legislation pushed through Congress because, you know, he had a relationship with all of those men who were in Congress, and he was able to get them to do things. So you can't take that fair housing legislation. All of that was under Johnson. But, you know, Johnson was very angry with Dad uh, because he criticized the war. He wasn't criticizing the man. He was saying that this war is immoral. Right. And so my my, yeah. my higher point is Martin Luther King Jr. was killed because when you start talking about a radical redistribution of wealth, he was talking about a living wage in 1967. Mm-hmm. Right. We're trying to get the minimum wage wage to $15. Right. He was talking about a living wage. You can't, yeah. you, you can't live. I mean, out of, it's, it takes at least $15, maybe a little more, right. to live in this society today. So think about it. He was talking about it in 67. So, you know, when you talk about radical, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was certainly a radical revolutionary, not some dormant, because maybe you don't understand nonviolence and you think nonviolence is is passive and and you just, oh, well, we're going to let them do whatever they want to do. You see, in, in 1955, December 1st, Rosa Parks sat down on a bus and was arrested in 1955. And December 5th, for 385 days, black folk decided not to ride buses. Black folk were 60% of the ridership. After 300 days or after 200 days, the bus company had a serious deficit. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to figure out what we're going to do. We got to do something. We can't keep going like this. We're going to go out of business. Mm-hmm. You know. So my point is, that's a radical form of protest. Right. And yeah. today we don't we don't engage in that. We don't. You know, this is we make the margin of profit for all these corporations. Say that again. All we Lord. have to begin to do is to exercise our buying power somewhere else collectively mm-hmm. and we can shut we can shut this economy down not that, I'm not suggesting that's what we should do but as a strategy we need to be talking about it yeah. and we need yeah. to be thinking about it Absolutely. and we need to be ramped up in case we need to yeah. because mm-hmm. if you want to deal with police brutality we're not getting the results okay Stop buying some of these clothing items that we buy. Stop buying. We spent $4 billion on chewing gum. Stop mm-hmm. chewing for a minute. And Wigglies <laughs> will come and help you resolve your problem. Absolutely. And whoever else. I'm just saying, these are things we don't think about because, you know, maybe we're not taught in that way. Yep. So I'm just saying, these are not, they, they sound radical, but they really aren't. They, they're ideas that are tried tried and, 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 and tested. I mean, you, you and have cannot be more spot on. Yeah. We, we, we just don't, we don't, we don't hold unity for long enough to affect. I, I say all the time, right? We can we can create change by affecting the people who oppress us life, right? But if we right. if we go that route, then we're, one, we're committing a, a major sin. Two, we're going to jail. Uh, right. Secondly, we could impact their freedom, but we don't own jails and we don't necessarily right. have a way to impact their freedom on a holistic level. Or you can impact their finances. And that's a place that we can have tremendous and impact. We, we spend... We take all our money to Bank America, mm-hmm. to Wells Fargo, yeah. mm-hmm. yep. to SunTrust here in Atlanta and, and other big, ba- major, Chase. major big banks. And ch- ch- absolutely. 
Bank America has foreclosed on more black folk than anybody. Mm -hmm. And yet we still keep banking as if that's the only choice we have. You got mm -hmm. choices. But I guess if you don't understand and know the information, you do nothing about it. I mean, so I think right. about the fact that during the foreclosure crisis, every last one of them were foreclosing on black folk. But yet they got a bailout by the administration. Yep. Oh. They, they were bailed out <laughs> after they, you know, after the housing crisis. But yet, you know, the question some would ask, well, when are you going to bail out our street? Yep. our community. And that never happened right. for the masses. But my higher point is this. The banks get away with all kind of, every every week, every month, we'll see, well, they just paid a billion dollar fine for something. Instead of going to jail, because if you and I did any of that, we would be under the jail and we'd never see the light of day. Never. The banks do something <laughs> and they just pay a little fine and a little fee and it's over. And I say little, I mean, it's a huge fee, but it's, 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 it's all speaking, in perspective. Right. But what they have is it's, it's, it's nothing. They're just, you know, okay, we'll yeah, pay this fine and we'll keep moving. And they're still suppressing and oppressing people. And so somehow we've got to become more informed and engaged and understand that. And then I just feel we have to go back to supporting our own institutions. It's our agree. responsibility to help bolster those institutions. Now, those institutions have a responsibility to provide the best service for us as well. It's not just, just it's not one, a one-way street, it's a two-way street. So we got to work on these things. Yeah. So, so question for you real quick, because you kind of tied two things in my mind um, that are really important. Uh, one is is this movement of, of, of nonviolence, right? Being a, being a, Something that that has sustained in in the thought process in the minds of Black people, the the next piece that kind of made me really think about that is is the economic component of that a primary component of what the movement is today or should be today. Well, that is that is something that we obviously um, have not thought about enough or engaged in. And as I said, I mean, we make the margin of profits for so many of these companies, mm -hmm. but it goes back to the strategic plan. Uh, I think if we have no plan, then we will, it's not going to just happen by osmosis and on its own. Now we have some young people who, uh, you know, are, are, are like, for example, uh, I saw just recently where here in Atlanta, who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, Killer Mike and, and uh, Ambassador Young. Greenwood. And, uh, uh, yeah, a couple of us have started a, 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 an online bank. Yeah. And I, that's, that's a, a step in the right direction. But I, I think we've got to look at the length and breadth of businesses that exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, whether it's insurance companies, whether it's, uh, uh, and again, none of this can be done in my judgment without a plan. Um, I think we've got to bring together some of our best and brightest to put these plans together. Yeah. And when we put the plans together, then we present them to our community. And, you know, you don't even have to have 100% support. That would be great if you did. But I mean, even something like a, a economic withdrawal. I mean, you sometimes you just have to threaten, and and yeah. and the powers to be have yeah. to believe that you're going to do it. Leverage They're is throwing important. all kind of money around today. Mm -hmm. But you know, I have I know of several people who are, have small businesses, and you say, well, aren't you getting 
resources for your loans for your businesses now because they have thrown all this money and they said, well, no, we don't fit in that, that criteria. Well, what are you, you fit in the criteria, you're a small business. Right. I, I don't get that. So where's this money going? So clearly we, we still have not achieved what we need to do. And yet it doesn't mean that it can't happen. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm just praying and hoping and working on, you know, uh, pulling together uh, a number of folks who can help us create this plan because the plan is going to ultimately create independence and liberation. And think, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened in the world that people don't really talk about or understand. One thing I, w- I want to jump in a little bit is we've talked a lot about your father's POV and the work that he's done. And we, and we begin to kind of transition into your thoughts. So I want to ask very directly to you, what is your purpose? What's your vision? What is, what's your mission? What are you working towards? So let me first give you a background on the things that I've done over the years. Uh, number one, I was an elected official here in, in Atlanta uh, for seven years mm-hmm. at the middle, mid-levels of government county commissioner. And uh, I wanted to give something back to the community to nourish my growth and development. And so I ran for office and we put a lot of programs in place in Fulton County. One of them was a minority business program, uh, minority business and um the other side of it was to make sure uh, when I, for example, when I came in, there were probably 30 heads of uh, departments and there may have been one or two blacks um, and maybe a few women. But I wanted to make sure that equal employment opportunity existed. So that Department of Contract Compliance and Equal Employment Opportunity was created by me when I was in office in 1987. Mm. And ultimately, it helped to make sure that more folks of color got contracts, Uh, more folks of color and women became department heads. Uh, So that was one of the things we did, as well as a a program we initiated uh, called a call to, which was entitled Call to Manhood, Mm. so that it would teach young boys to become men. And that program is still going on, even though I haven't been there in many years as as a commissioner, as an elected official. But in addition to that, I was the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, the fourth president, excuse me. My father was first, as I said, Dr. Abernathy second, Dr. Lowry third, Dr. Joseph Lowry, and I was the fourth president. And at SCLC, we did gun buyback programs because we felt that, you know, maybe if we purchased some of the guns and did conflict resolution, we could teach people how to live together. And so we were able to purchase over those four years, you know, like 20,000 guns. Um, That was one of the programs. But we also were involved in police brutality and misconduct. We were about to get legislation. Reverend Sharpton and I did a march in, I believe, 90, it was was 2000. And the goal was to... um, you know, to curtail police brutality and misconduct. We were about to get legislation. And then, you know, the next year, uh, Bush was in and um, 9-11 occurred. So it re-empowered policing authorities. And we've sort of, as a nation, been kind of working on these issues for a number of years. And we haven't made, I don't want to say any progress, but very little progress. Um, In addition to being at SCLC, I have been the president of the King Center here in Atlanta. I've also been uh, the president of an organization I founded called Realizing the Dream. And now I'm working uh, with an, another organization called the Drum Major Institute, which is an organization that my father and his lawyer founded mm. uh, back in the 60s. And 
uh, my wife and I and daughter are now working through that organization uh, to eradicate the triple evils of poverty, racism, and violence uh, through the values of peace, justice, and, and equity. Love it. And it has a global mission. But, we, you know, it's really about bringing people together. And it's a lot of us working in small ways. For example, one of the things we got to look at is the existing legislation on the books. And we have to bolster that legislation. Uh, and then the second thing we have to do is look at new legislation. And that's why uh, the hope is that we will be successful in electing senators from right. the state of Georgia. Right. Um, so that um, the president-elect will have a majority. Um, and if that does not happen, it's going to be some challenging sailing. It does not right. mean nothing will be done. But the hope is we'll be successful on, on that mission because, you know, for us to get new legislation, we need to have a, a majority of the Democratic Party. I'm not generally... Uh, advocating one party or the other, but in this context, I am advocating in relationship to to the Democratic Party. I believe we need independence. I believe we need to be, you know, everywhere. I think it's important for us to have representation everywhere. But right now, we need to be unified. This is a time we need unity so we can move forward and advance uh, the agenda. So when you when you talk about my vision, my mission, my objective is to create a different kind of climate in our nation so that we as human beings can live together without destroying personal yeah. property. Yeah. And that's what nonviolence, that's why yeah. I always advocate nonviolence because yeah. I really believe we can make progress there, but we have to have unity. And unfortunately, we don't have that yet, but we have to create that climate. The other thing I want to do is we have created and accepted a culture of violence. Uh, seven out of 10 movies have been violent. Yeah. Six out of 10 cartoons are violent. We, we're changing that now. So naturally, we are socialized around violence. So we got to find a way to, to, to address that so that we can be socialized and create a culture of nonviolence as opposed to a culture accepting a culture of violence. Right. So I want to foster creating that culture so that we as a society um, do not destroy ourselves. No, I feel that. So for, for all of our listeners, so right, who, who heard what you said and completely align with your purpose, your mission, your vision, if you had to boil it down to the three things that each of these listeners individually could do in order to support this climate change that we're talking about, what would those three things be? So if I had to distill it down to three distinct things mm -hmm. um, that that listeners can do. First of all, I want to encourage people to get involved with an organization. You know, we'd love to have you at Drum Major as you, you'll be hearing more about us online. Uh, but join an organization, get involved with something. I mean, one of the things I want to encourage more importantly than anything else, in the United States of America, if you go to college and it, it, there's something if you don't go to college, too. But if you do go to college, in four years, if you're in the military, you're in the ROTC, you are a lieutenant, which is a commanding officer in the military. So if you can be a commanding officer at 21 years old in the military, why then can you not also run for school board, run yeah, yeah. for state legislature? run for mayors in some cities? Most of these jobs are part-time jobs, and we need the vision and the energy of young people 
to be leading. And that, quite frankly, that's already happening. Yeah. We see, uh, we see, you know, these movements, whether it's the women's movement or the Me Too movement, whether it's the Parkland students, whether it's, uh, of course, Black Lives Matter, all of these movements, we need some of those young people who are involved in leading to run for office right. because they they have they have an agenda. They have a mission that we, we need people in office who understand what our plight is and can work on policy that is going to make it better for all of us. So that's probably more important than anything, <laughs> young people running for office. Right. The second thing that I would say is, as I said, you got to find what your passion is, whether it's climate control, whether it's, you know, uh, violence in our communities, whether it's, you know, health care, uh, whatever it is, Find out what your what your passion is. What 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 is it that makes you wake up every yeah. day and want to go and achieve your goals and objectives? And because the only way you, you can you first have sometimes you have to be selfish or self centered. Excuse right. me, not selfish, self centered to achieve your goals and right. objectives. And then of course it is really about giving back because that's what I. That's what I fundamentally believe, that all of us can give a little something uh, to, to add uh, to, to the whole. But I can't tell people what they what makes them tick, what makes them right. what they're passionate about. You gotta, there's, there's so much online today that we can go up and almost identify any subject. But sometimes you, you, you have to volunteer for organizations. You, you just, like I said, you just got to get engaged. Yeah. But stay tuned because you're going to see some very interesting and exciting things that we're going to be doing. And we would like to, to join, join us because we, we need your help. We need your insight. We need, you know, your, we want to know what your vision is because right. it's not just Martin King. I'm, I'm just one, but there are millions that can join together to bring about change. And it's very easy to do now because of technology. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One, one question that you hear people debate about often that I want to get your perspective on is very simply put, have things changed and has progress been made since the fifties and the sixties? Oh God, yes. Thank you. Thank <laughs> oh you. God, yes. There's no question. I mean, I, I almost 50s. get mad when people argue and say nothing's changed. I almost get angry. No, at you, you can't come at it from that perspective. I mean, in the fifth, I mean, think about it, in the fifties, yeah. our people were being hung. So Correct. still, Correct. you know, Correct. so you, it, it, we're, it's we're being lynched a different way today, right. but it's it's totally different. I mean, you know, like I said, you got ten. It, it, you got at least eight or nine billionaires that we know of. Right. And there are lots of folks who have a, uh, resources that didn't. So yes, God, we've made all <laughs> kind of progress. <laughs> Thank you. Have we, have we accomplished what we need to? Absolutely not. Right. There's still we, work We're to nowhere be done. near where we need to be, but we've certainly made progress. Right. I, if anybody who says, I mean, there are individuals who think we haven't. And, you know, I, I don't know if, if that's what they really believe or if they, are saying it because they believe that it I don't I don't like to believe in pessimism. Right. Yeah. You know, I I would t I will say for sure we are not anywhere close to where we should be. But even if you look at, you know, in the 60s we were spending you know 300, you know, maybe billion dollars or so, right. maybe well, I tell Today people, we're spending over a trillion, so absolutely. yes. Now, but spending is not the word. We got to make our dollars make sense. Right, absolutely. And, and that's not what we're doing yet. We got to do that. Well, that's I tell people step. all the time that if you can sit in front of me and say that no progress has been made 
to me, that's a symptom of the privilege that you enjoy because that means you didn't have to suffer through, manage through, and live through what it felt like in the 60s, right? Yeah. That's that, historical right, ignorance. Right. There's yep. a, there was a different level of fear. We talk about fearing when we get pulled over, but there were people who feared walking down the street daily, that's right? Correct. It's, that's it's right. a very different thing. All right, that's so right. We're, we're coming to the end. I've got two questions. One of them is more serious. One of them is admittedly silly, but I can't help it because I have wondered it myself many times. So I'll start with the, the more serious question. Consider this. You have an open microphone to the entire black planet. Every person that qualifies as black will hear the words that you say. No one can turn it off. No one can mute you. They can hear every single word that you say. What do you tell them? Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a quote. <laughs> I really am going to use a quote because I really fundamentally believe this of my father. And that is, in life, you must find out you. That's you, mm. not me. I believe I know mine, but you need. You must find out what your calling is. Mm. And when you find out that calling, you must do your job so well that the living, the dead, or the unborn could do that job no better. Mm. Dad went on to say that if it follows you a lot to be a street sweeper, go on and sweep streets like Michelangelo carved marble. Mm. Every last one of us must find what our calling is. Because when you, if you're fortunate enough to find out what it is, right. then it no longer is really work. Right. You know, it, it, it really is, you know, <laughs> yes. whether someone paid you or not, you would do it. You'll do it. Think about these guys who created this, this technology. The whites have, have done a lot of it. And right now you got a lot of brothers who are in the high tech space. As you know, you might be, I can't remember. But the fact of the matter <laughs> yep. is we're creating stuff every day. Your goal is not necessarily, yeah, you want to make money. But when you focus on creating, the result ends up could make millions and, and millions and billions of dollars right. because your focus was not, okay, just focused on the making the money. That the, 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 the thing is, when, when, when you find your calling, it's remarkable right. because you're basically unstoppable. Hosea Williams, mm. who told me, he said, you know, I love this man. Uh, talking about my dad. And mm. I'm not suggesting everybody has to do this. But I think it's quite profound. He said he conquered the love of wealth mm. and the fear of death. Mm. Now think about how profound that is. that is. If you conquer the love of wealth, in our society, we are so wealth driven. Yeah. We, you know, we want to have this kind of car. We want to have these kind of clothes. We want to have this kind of house. And all that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as that's not <laughs> all that you, it's all about you. Right. But and, and when you're not afraid to die, you're virtually unstoppable in your quest. So that's why I say, you know, if it falls you a lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo carved marble, sweep streets like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry, sweep streets like Raphael painted pictures, sweep streets so well that all the hosts of the heavens and earth would have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper that did his job well, Douglas Malick, the historian, used to say in another way, if you can't be a pine on the top of the hill, just be a shrub in the valley. But be the best little shrub on the side of a road. Be a bush if you cannot be a tree. If you cannot be a highway, just be a trail. If you cannot be the sun, just be a star. For it isn't by size that you win or you fail. You've just got to be the best of what you are. So in my judgment, wow. that's what our challenge is as a community, uh, to be the best of what we are. 
And if we are able to personify that, we're in orbit. We, we wow. shot ourselves out into orbit. Brother, wow. that was amazing. Okay, last question. Silly, but I have often wondered this, and this will be the only time I curse in the episode. So, black people, stereotypically, also kind of in reality, are professional, especially black parents, are professional ass whoopers, right? Like, mom and dad can get in that ass in a way that can no one else, right? And I'm speaking from plenty of experience, and I can feel it right now. But I've often wondered, right, in your household, right, <laughs> you, you know where I'm going. I've often wondered, like, I, I hear your father, I hear him giving the I have a dream speech, right? And in my mind, right, right, in my mind, he is non-valid. He cannot possibly be whooping no ass. Not with that voice, it's too calm, right? It feels too good, right? Same thing with your mother. I've heard her speak, like, it just feels like there's no ass whooping here. So, brother, growing up, did they tear that ass up? Uh, you want to <laughs> uh, see what happened was <laughs> dad never did. He didn't have a chance to. There was there was one chance. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you this this story and uh, I'm gonna write about it. But when I when I was uh, one 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 day, mom was the disciplinarian. So yeah, she did. You know, we 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 had to go get switches just like every other. Ca- I mean, you know, we were supposed to be nonviolent. And to some degree, we were, but we were, you know, we were sort of kind of rambunctious as kids. <laughs> and my brother and I and sister, we fought like other kids. You know, we we tried to be uh, ex- exhibit the right behavior, but yeah, the, but the human part of us got the best of us. <laughs> so, um, Dad, the only time that he came after us, really, I mean, I, I honestly do not ever remember him. Uh, tearing up, uh, whipping any of us. Yolanda was 12 when he was killed. I was 10. Dexter mm-hmm. was 7. Bernice was 5. So we were all, you know, relatively young, but not too young to be whooped. Right. Because uh, <laughs> mom, mom did, you know, whoop us early and often sometimes, initially. <laughs> uh, but one time, Dad came home, and he was like our play. You know, we enjoyed just really playing. We had fun. You know, he put us, put my little sister on top of the refrigerator and she'd jump off in his arms. And, you know, we just, he'd play baseball, football with us in the front yard when he, when he could. Um, at some point he had to stop playing with us outside because people would stop him and he couldn't focus on us. And so wow. he wanted to make sure that his children were attentively addressed. Right. Well, uh, this one day he came home and he was just dog tired. I mean, he was wiped out. So he was lying on the couch in the living room of our home, and he was snoring, and we wanted to get his attention. So somebody said, let's get some water in daddy's ear. Mm. 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 And I, it wasn't my idea. It wasn't me. I, I don't remember who or which one. It was don't, don't rat him out. I think don't rat was. him out. But anyway, anyway. <laughs> We we poured the water in his ear, and he jumped up and ran. And, of course, we ran. We scattered like rats, you know, roaches. <laughs> he never did catch us. But I believe had he called us that day, it would have been over. <laughs> oh, but, man. But that, that was, that's honestly the only time I ever remember him getting so angry with us that he wanted to, to do something to us. Wow. But beyond that, I never remember ever being disciplined by, by dad. But mom did discipline us from time to time. Well, Martin, I can't think of a better way to end the show on, on that laughing note. 
man, you you don't know how much I appreciate the time you've spent. I know we went over the time plan, so thank you so much for that. No, no. We we thank always thank you for what you all do. Oh thank man, you. it's when you talk about passion and purpose, right? This is. This is, this is our contribution. This is one of the things that we do to help build a better society and a better black community. This is, this is what we take to heart here. But the, the last thing we always do is we, we hand the mic over to our guest to close out the show. So in these last few moments, I'm, I'm giving you the opportunity to tell the Wild Black listeners anything that's on your heart to share with them. As we uh, observe, and again, I say observe the King holiday, every year, I think it's very profound and uh, it's very interesting that Martin Luther King Jr. was born in January, which is the first month of the year. So all of us have made our New Year's resolutions. We should be well on our way on the third Monday of January as we're observing the King holiday period. And what's amazing for me is I look back every year and I say, you know, his dream was about freedom, justice, and equality for all humankind. And we didn't achieve it last year. But every January, we have the opportunity to begin anew. And one day, we are going to achieve that fulfillment of that dream of freedom, justice, and equality for humankind. Remember, it only takes a few good women and men. Dad and mom taught us that throughout their lives and their examples. As we observe this holiday, think about what you can do to make a difference in your neighborhood or in your community or on your street. And and I'll say this this final thing. When I was a kid, my mom took me to her undergraduate school, which was Antioch College. I was about 14 years old. And on the campus of Antioch was a statue of the educator Horace Mann. There was an inscription on that statue that made an indelible impact upon my life. And the words inscribed under that statue were, be ashamed to die until you've won a victory for humanity. Mm. And I said, oh my God, Mm. that's powerful. It is. I had to say it again. Be ashamed to die until you've won a victory for humanity. Mm. Then I began to break that down. And I said, you know, we're not big corporations, so we can't really move in that way. But we're individuals. So some of us, or any of us, could win a victory on our street. Or we could win a victory in our neighborhood. Some of us may win victories in our cities. Some may win them in our states. Some may even win victories in our nation. And then few may still win victories for our world. But all those words basically mean are be ashamed to die until you've done a little something to make the world in which we all must live a little better than it was when you arrived. Mm. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's so real. I love that. Martin, brother, thank you so much for this time. To our, to our listeners, make sure you go hit up MLKing3, MLKing, the number three, dot com, so that you can stay connected to what Martin is doing, so that you can follow him And you can understand more about the world that he is helping to create and make better for all of us to exist in. On today, on MLK Day, make sure, much like he said, you're observing this holiday and that you are here paying attention to the things around you, contributing to the positivity in your world and the world that impacts everyone else and taking care of yourself. Art, you got anything, brother? There's a lot of nuggets in this episode. Um, It is. 
too many to count. Uh, but but I encourage all the listeners to 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 replay this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, pull out a, a a a notebook and a pen, and think about the level of depth that we just went into, and your contributions to humanity yeah. that you can make. Yeah. Doesn't have to be huge. It it can be on your block. Yeah. Simple yeah. enough. Yeah. Martin, brother, thank you so much, man. Thank you all. Wild Black. We out. Peace. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.